Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on July 31st, 2009. I'm Steve Mursky. This week we'll look at the contents of the August issue of Scientific American magazine with Editor-in-Chief Mariette Cristina and Staff Editor Kate Wong. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Without any further ado, here we go. We spoke in Mariette's office. And I'm here with Mariette Cristina. You can see a lovely photograph of her in the, the uh, letter from the editor column. The August issue has some fascinating stuff, including uh, the cover piece on Neanderthals. And Kate Wong, the author of that piece, is here, and we'll talk about that in a moment. We have this piece called Adventures in Curved Space-Time by a Brazilian physicist. What's that all about? Um, the Brazilian physicist's name is Eduardo Guerron, and he is based at the, um, he's a math professor based at Federal University in Brazil. And he writes this story in a, in the tradition of a, a series of wonderful stories in the 40s by George Gamow that told the story of a physicist who had some wonderful adventures. And in this story, likewise, Guerron takes us on a journey through the wonderful adventures in curved space-time of an astronaut. And um, it's kind of like a summer reading for physicists story. I would enjoy it on a beach myself. It's just fun reading, but all the things discussed in the article are real and necessary consequences of general relativity. Right. The larger scientific point here, Steve, is that 90 years after Einstein described how, you know, gravity comes as a consequence of curved space-time, and we should back up on that for just a minute. You know, for instance, around Earth, you could think of gravity as forming a kind of a well around Earth, which causes the things that pass near Earth, the moon, let's say, which is orbiting on its path, to stay within the vicinity because it falls into, where you know, that gravity well, metaphorically speaking. And in likewise, the same way, this astronaut that is fictitiously described by uh, by our good mathematics professor takes a journey through curved space-time. He leaves his spacecraft, and again, this is all based on the latest research. He jets off and tries to form a triangle. He brings a laser pointer with him, so he knows he's traveling in a straight line, and also some shaving cream. And he realizes when he measures that... Not to shave with. Not to shave, but to mark his path. Thank you. And he realizes when he when he measures that, that triangle that it adds up to more than 180 degrees. And the astronaut finds out, and this is real, that if you needed to in curved space-time, if you needed to move in the vacuum, you could do so without anything to push off of or any kind of accelerant to uh, force you by virtue of Newton's third law. You can just... By twisting your body, by moving your body in the right way, you can actually move from point A to point B in this empty space, as long as it's curved space. Right, as long as it's curved space. Now, this comes from a, this piece of it comes from a 2003 paper by a, um, a planetary scientist named Jack Wisdom at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And what he discovered is that you can move, as you were describing, through curved space by moving, let's say, your arms and legs, or if you were an alien, as is described in the in the article, a tripod alien, just for the simplicity of, of demonstrating how the movements are, with sort of heavy feet and uh, a ball at the end of the tail that help move the weight around, just for the 
just to make it kind of simple to look through, you can move um, through curved space-time without pushing against anything. And this is the key here. To get an understanding of the basic concept, think about some time maybe when you sat at a soda pop shop or a bar or something on one of those chairs that's on uh, a swivel wheel. And if you were to swing your arms around, your body would start to move in opposition to that. And moving through curved space-time is similar in this fashion. You, you know, it's not exactly similar because, you know, curved space-time being without immediate gravity nearby or amount, uh, you know, without things to push against, whereas, you know, you're resting on a chair and pushing. So it's, it's really just an analogy. But if you were to move your arms in and out, you could quickly spin your body or imagine a cat. Uh, falling from a one-story building, let's say, snapping its legs out and around and back so that it can land on its feet. It, too, is moving uh, through space without pushing against anything. And in likewise fashion, Jack Wisdom's paper described how one could, quote-unquote, swim through curved space-time. You can't swim fast. Uh, it's, it's, it's not going to help you if you're a couple of miles away from your ship. But if you're, you know, just for argument's sake, if you're 20 feet from the ship, but you're in the same, uh, exact, going exactly the same velocity as the ship, ordinarily, well, you'd be, you'd be up the creek, so to speak, because with nothing to, to accelerate against, you would just parallel the path of the ship until you ran out of oxygen and, or starved to death and whatever. But with, with the implications of general relativity, you could very slowly and laboriously make your way back to the ship and, you know, get back inside and survive. Now, the other really fascinating implication of general relativity is that falling through a vacuum in curved space-time by stretching and contracting, but not at the same rate, if you stretch at one rate and contract at another rate, you can actually slow your descent and behave like a glider, even though there's no atmosphere. Right. You're describing the, the gliding part of the story, which is based on the um, Professor Geron's own research with, uh, with another fellow, um, Ricardo Mosna, at the State University of Campanas in Brazil. And that's from a 2007 paper. And yes, you can glide. An object could, if approaching a, a planet, could slow its descent by moving, as you described, contracting at one speed, expanding at another. And this, too, is a, a specific consequence from the theory of general relativity. It's really fun stuff, and it's illustrated with uh, kind of cartoony-like images. It sort of looks like uh, Archie in space, actually. Just a little bit. I don't see Jughead. I think he died in the airlock. Oh, well, there's, there's a little green alien there. He does have a lovely sidekick exactly. who has those uh, incredible limbs I was telling you about, too. Be- all the better to describe the principles behind this. It's, it's, fun. it's a fun article, but it's serious physics and based on the latest research, and I, I hope everybody enjoys it. And uh, we also have the cover piece. Uh, speaking of fun articles that are based on serious things, is about our closest relatives to human beings, to, well, they're human beings too, to Homo sapiens, the Neanderthals. And the author, Kate Wong, who's a staff editor here at Scientific American and a real expert on this stuff, is with us. How are you doing, Kate? Doing really well, Steve. Thanks. So this is a fascinating article because we're really, we're still learning so much about Neanderthals. 
I swear I saw one on the subway today, but apparently that's impossible. That's right. So far as we know, the very last Neanderthals died out shortly after 28,000 years ago. Scientists have known about Neanderthals since the 1800s. So if you look at the extinct humans in the human family tree, they know more about Neanderthals than any other of the extinct species. And that being said, they're still really mysterious to us in very many ways. One of the things about Neanderthals that I find so intriguing is that they were around our size and shape, maybe a little bit more massive in their arms and legs, but roughly our height, maybe a few inches shorter. If a Neanderthal did walk past you on the subway, you might not have noticed them. Is that really true, though? I've heard that if, if, a, if a real Neanderthal uh, happened into the room, you would jump back because their physical appearance would be so strange to you that you'd really be taken aback. It really depends on who you ask. There are certainly a number of scientists who minimize the physical differences between Neanderthals and modern humans and those who, as you said, um, would very readily picture an extremely different creature from us. We have an interesting illustration in artist's uh, scientifically informed idea of what a Neanderthal might look like. And it's, it's close enough that you, you might give the guy a second look, but you, you probably wouldn't run screaming. Yeah, the, the basic physical differences or the most noticeable physical differences between Neanderthals and modern humans are the fact that Neanderthals are, they're within this, the height range of modern humans, but on the shorter side. So, um, maybe five and a half feet tall or so, but they were massive. They had big barrel chests and short, stocky limbs. They were really built for power, and they were also built to retain heat in the cold climate that they often endured. Um, and as far as their faces go, they had really massive um, brow ridges uh, over their eyes, and then they didn't have chins, really. So their faces would have looked different, but maybe dressed with a suit and a top hat, they wouldn't look so different. One of the things you talk about, I'm just laughing at the idea of a uh, Neanderthal in a suit and a top hat, a little like uh, Young Frankenstein. That's just what I was thinking of. <laughs> a little like Peter Boyle and Young Frankenstein. Yeah. For you kids out there who haven't seen it, rush out to see it immediately. So the, uh, the Neanderthal um, brow ridge you mentioned in the article it was probably, and I had I'd never seen this before. Was probably a uh, consequence just of genetic drift rather than any kind of real selection pressure. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, there's no known functional benefit to having that brow, at least none that's been established with certainty. So, what a number of scientists proposed is that that feature is really the result of genetic drift within their population and and not something that benefited them in any particular way. Genetic drift refers to the fact that just by chance, some small uh, percentage of Neanderthals had this prominent ridge and then they became the the progenitors of the population, so it got passed on even though there wasn't any particular selection pressure or any particular survival advantage to having it? That's right. So what are some of the things that um, that are, you know, just becoming known about 
Neanderthals. We talked about the, the body size and the, the heat uh, possible advantage. But things like what's the major differences between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals? I realize that there's there's still a lot of disagreement in the scientific community about this. But what do they think were some of the differences? Culture is is really a major difference between the two human species. Yes and no. I mean, there were for a long time, for many decades, um, scientists believed that Neanderthals were fundamentally different from modern humans in the way that they behaved. And when you look at the the archaeological record, what you see are beautifully made stone tools, but not very many cases of Neanderthals making jewelry, um, no instances of Neanderthals making musical instruments or painting on cave walls. And so there seems to be a difference, although there are certain um, a few cases of Neanderthals making jewelry and other seemingly symbolic artifacts. Um, they don't seem to have done it with the regularity that uh, early modern humans did. And we've also discovered, because we now have some actual Neanderthal DNA to work with, that they did have this particular gene, FOXP2 gene, that is uh, correlated with our ability to speak, not that I'm a good example of that right at the moment, but but uh, species that do not have this, and that's pretty much everybody else, uh, can't really articulate. But the FOXP2 gene seems to be really important if you're going to have spoken language, spoken communication. And, and for a long time it was thought that the Neanderthals didn't have the ability to communicate orally uh, in a sophisticated way. But now we know they did have the FOXP2 gene, which implies that they probably could speak to each other pretty well. It implies that they had a similar ability to form words. It doesn't tell us anything about language, which is much more than the mechanical ability to form words. So, yes, it does um, forge maybe a stronger bond between Neanderthals and modern humans when we're looking at, at the genetics. And yet at the same time, there seem to be a number of distinctions between Neanderthal DNA and modern human DNA. We don't know the full picture of that. We'll have a better sense of it when the rough draft of the Neanderthal genome is published, which is supposed to happen later this year. Um, but for now, the genetics, and even when when the genome is published, we still won't know because so much of of the human genome, we don't know what it means functionally. And that, that holds true for modern humans. So, of course, um, it, it's not going to instantly tell us everything that we want to know about Neanderthals. One of the things in the article is the... Uh... The, it looks like the metabolic requirements, because of their particular physiology, were significantly higher than modern humans. It looks like they needed anywhere from, what was it, 100 to 350 more calories a day. And that might not sound like much to uh, to us in our potato chip-laden world, where we can just, you know, and, and unfortunately do pick up an extra four or 500 calories anytime we feel like it. But that could be a huge problem for somebody who's uh, really, you know, living hand to mouth, just wondering where the next meal is going to come from every day. Absolutely. It could really be a deal breaker if you think about how hard it was to live under really cold conditions, um, colder than anything that uh, our species today 
um, has to contend with. And then on top of that, making your living essentially um, as an ambush hunter of what seems to be mostly large, dangerous animals like woolly rhinoceroses, um, then that extra 150 to 300 calories a day, yeah, that's a big deal. That can determine whether or not you survive or perish. And uh, the article mentions that there's no evidence for sewing in Neanderthals. So they, they, although their bodies were really good at maintaining heat or conserving heat, they probably weren't as good as modern humans at making clothes that could help with the heat conservation. It's really hard to know. There's, there's lots of ways to attach pieces of hide. It doesn't have to involve needles. But what we can say is that although modern humans have left behind what are clearly awls and needles, um, Neanderthals did not leave those things behind. They may have been made out of more perishable materials, wood. Maybe it was fire treated for hardness or something. We don't have it anymore, but who knows? But clearly, though, they had to have made clothing to withstand the cold temperatures that they experienced. There's no end of people still out there looking for Neanderthal artifacts and Neanderthal fossils. Yeah, absolutely. There is a lot of active research in terms of archaeologists going out there and looking for Neanderthal bones and their artifacts. And, of course, the genome opens up a whole new range of possibilities for what we can extract um, about Neanderthal lives. There's uh, lots of other interesting stuff in the magazine. There's an article on celiac disease. And on first glance, it seemed like, well, what's an article on, you know, one particular disease doing in Scientific American? Because we, we, or, we ordinarily don't do just, you know, disease of the month or whatever. But the celiac article illustrates larger points uh, related to autoimmunity. Yes, it does. Um, actually, before I speak about that, I would like to back up for just a minute. I mean, Kate's discussion about Neanderthals and our own history as a species on the planet reminds me of the, the origin of the celiac disease issue, and which is, you know, very deeply tied with our human history. You know, one day, uh, way back when, Various early humans realized that from seeds spring plants, and those plants provide us with food. And so herein lies the the wonderful benefit to humanity of figuring out a way to make settlements rather than having to gather all your food or to necessarily hunt every piece of meat you eat. So we began to plant these seeds and began to grow them, began to eat, be better fed and more healthy and probably contributed to us living longer uh, in short order, although certainly it raised other problems as well. And among those other problems was the problem of celiac disease. Celiac is triggered partly by um, the ingestion of gluten, a protein common in wheat. There are also a couple of factors that you need to have as well. You need to have the genetic susceptibility and you need to have something called a leaky gut, which you can think of as the ability for uh, of the intestine to let through this gluten protein into the bloodstream where it can incite the activity of the immune system and thus create this autoimmune problem. Because what is an autoimmune disease? It is a disease where the body is acting against itself, where our immune system is, which is normally harnessed for our protection, is instead causing us troubles of one kind or another. 
in in celiac disease, uh, people who to suffer from it suffer chronic indigestional problems. They have bloating, they have diarrhea, they have you know all sorts of very you know various discomforts related to that, and it's all keyed to this susceptibility. It's really interesting. It gets down to basic chemistry because there are proteins in wheat gluten that have certain amino acids in them that the celiac sufferer's digestive system can't chop up the proteins into small enough bits. And so you have these longer bits of these particular amino acids, and they're the things that really confound the lining of the intestine. Yeah, a couple things here. You know, one is, first of all, celiac also expresses itself with other problems, for instance, absorbing iron, you know, other immune deficiencies that result uh, from it. And another is um, you, you do need these, these three factors, the genetic susceptibility, the, the problem with the, the gut, and the, and the gluten ingestion to trigger it. What happens is there are these um, finger-like protrusions in the intestine. They're called villi, and you can think of them as looking like fingers. And they get both, inf- you know, really inflamed and then can't absorb the nutrients and pass them, convey them along to the bloodstream for distribution in celiac disease. What we're finding out based on studying celiac, though, has implications for all autoimmune diseases. Well, for many. I'm glad you're looping us back to what you had raised at the beginning. Some of the diseases that are autoimmune types that are related to celiac, and so things we, in other words, things we find out about how to block celiac disease or how to treat it would be applicable potentially to these diseases are um, type 1 diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, and inflammatory bowel syndrome. All of these share characteristics of celiac disease, such as that leaky gut. And what are the, the, the nuts and bolts of the potential treatments? What are we learning from celiac that could specifically be applied to this wide range of autoimmune conditions? One thing that was really key for the researchers is is the leaky gut itself. I mean, the researcher describes um, how, for a long time, it was thought that there was a kind of grout that held those that those, that intestinal wall together really firmly, and there was no reason it was it wasn't scientifically interesting. But as they were trying to develop a particular vaccine that would have taken advantage of that, they found that the the people who took the vaccine got horrible diarrhea, and it was a counterindication for, for using that vaccine. In other words, as the poor researcher said, he was a low light in his career. All years of his research had literally gone down the toilet. But what it did, as so often happens in science, is spark him to a new idea. Well, maybe this area of the intestinal wall was interesting to take a look at, and maybe through there they could get some keys from something else, and that's how they got started. So eventually they honed in on a particular kind of a protein called zonulin, which is involved somehow in, in managing or manipulating the lining of, you know, the, the permeability of that intestinal wall. Now we don't know all the things that zonulin does yet. It probably has as many things in the body. It probably is active in, in many processes, but this one seems like it may potentially be a key to therapies for, or one of the keys to therapies for celiac disease. As well as we can probably extend it, whatever we learn here, you know, we, we learn something studying this autoimmune condition and we might wind up using it in some other autoimmune condition. Right. And something I didn't mention before, Steve, but which I think is important to mention here is even in focusing on a single disease. And you're right. We don't 
typically do that at Scientific American. We don't want to do diseases of the month per se, although certainly we don't mean to belittle the importance of, you know, these various diseases in people's lives, but of the broader context as well. In this case, celiac disease affects a surprising number of people. It's about 1% of the population of worldwide. And in the U.S., that translates to around 2 million people. About 100 years ago, there was um, uh, a fellow um, who discovered there was a disorder of chronic indigestion. But in those days, they had no idea what it was from. It's only in the past several decades that we realized that it's a particular disorder called celiac disease, that it has particular characteristics to, you know, the way it, the disease presents itself, the disorder presents itself, and also that it can be at least managed, if not perfectly, through changes in diet. Although, as everybody knows, very difficult to completely avoid gluten. Thank goodness there are many more products and a lot more awareness of the, the problem these days. So it's a little bit easier for folks. Yeah. In the last 10 years, I think you've seen this explosion of gluten-free products out there because it's become recognized just how pervasive celiac is. Right. And for many people also, and, and this is true of a, a friend of mine as well, my old journalism professor, in fact, people maybe go through a lot of their lives because of the lack of understanding of celiac. And then only when they're adults, sometimes into you know middle age, are they finally finding out that all oh, the reason their stomach was tricky was celiac all along. Lots of other interesting stuff in the issue, Yucca Mountain and how uh, how politics is uh, changing that whole scene there about nuclear waste storage. Remember high-temperature superconductivity, which has sort of been out of the headlines for a while now, but um, recent discoveries about the, the possible role of iron, which is not, a, not an element that you usually associate with superconductivity. Uh, could wind up playing a big part in, in the development of new superconductors. And, uh, let's finish up with the, uh, you know, our, one of our favorite features in the magazine, 50, 100, and 150 years ago. And I'd like to read both of you. You've seen this before, but it's been a while since, uh, since the August issue was lying around here in page proofs. So I'm going to read you from August of 1909, Scientific American, 100 years ago. This issue. Mr. Ernest Rumer of Berlin, well known for his inventions in the field of wireless telephony and telegraphy, has succeeded in perfecting what is probably the first demonstration apparatus which may be said actually to solve the problem of television. And television is spelled T-E-L-E hyphen vision in 1909. The writer has had an opportunity of inspecting this curious machine immediately before it's being sent to Brussels in order there to be demonstrated before the promoters of the Universal Exhibition planned for next year. In fact, a complete and definite television apparatus costing the trifling sum of one and a quarter million dollars is to be the clue of this exposition. A million and a quarter for a new TV. And, and now, you know, with an, with a, you can carry one around in your pocket. So today, right, just for a few hundred dollars and decent antenna, we have this thing which no longer is hyphenated television, um, which provides crystal clear digital pictures of what, you know, that almost look like looking out a window today. It's quite remarkable. The transition that can be made in just a hundred short years what did they do at night without, well, I mean, there, obviously there was at least one TV, but what, at a million and a quarter, only the very richest people could watch it and what was on. <laughs> 
I, there was some guy reading the news. I would, I would think, right? They would crack open the Dickens <laughs> and get going with Bleak House. Now it's time to play totally bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one. Speaking of Neanderthals, an investigation has fingered a Homo sapiens in the death of a Neanderthal based on the type of stone point found in the Neanderthal's 50,000-year-old body. Story two. Shark attacks are scary. Bum, 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 bum. But people kill four orders of magnitude more sharks. Then sharks kill people. Story three, the human body often emits visible light. And story four, people synchronize their blinking when watching a video. Time's up. Story one is true. Looks like the modern human off the Neanderthal with the kind of stone point Neanderthals couldn't come up with. That's what the report in the Journal of Human Evolution says. For more info, check out Kate Wong's July 30th article on our website entitled Homo sapiens fingered in Neanderthal cold case. Story four is true. A small study found that people did sink their blinking while watching an action-packed video. Well, it was a Mr. Bean sketch, actually. The synced blinking probably means that we time our blinks based on the action to best ensure that we don't miss anything important. For more, check out the July 31st edition of the Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science. Story three is true. The body does emit measurable, visible light, but you don't notice it because it's at very low levels and everything else is usually so well lit. The emitted light is related to metabolism, so future cameras might be able to spot problems related to metabolic conditions. The research appears in the journal Public Library of Science 1. All of which means that story two about people killing four orders of magnitude or 10,000 times the number of sharks and sharks kill people is totally bogus. Because what is true is that people kill on the order of 10 million times as many sharks every year as sharks kill humans. For example, in 2008, 59 recorded shark attacks resulted in four human deaths. Meanwhile, humans killed some 73 million sharks last year, mostly for their fins to make soup. Why not just leave the sharks alone and have them in a strone? Oh, when the shark bites with his teeth there. Well, that's it for this episode of Science Talk. Check out scientificamerican.com for the latest science news and for Michael Shermer's skeptic column about who really wrote the works of Shakespeare. It was Shakespeare. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. On the sidewalk, one Sunday morning.